Welcome to C3 Church Central Coast Sermon Cast. We pray that you'll be inspired and impacted by this message and trust that you're better equipped to live your best life. Hey, if you've got a Bible, I want you to open uh, it in two places. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 13 in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 13. But before we go there, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Did you put the washing out before you came to church? I did. And the rain came to... Eleanor, learning to be domestic. Caleb, that's a good sign. Mum told her. Okay. Still obedient. Still a good sign. Yeah. Um, now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And he, Jesus, died for all. For who? Everyone. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Remember the song, History Maker? That the band Delirious, very cool, grungy, you know, cry to live for God. I want to be a history maker. It was very, sort of captured the hearts of young people. And I remember seeing them sing that song at the Hillsong Conference uh, in Sydney. And they had this fantastic visual accompaniment. They had big screens behind them. And the song begins in this sort of cool way, talking about past revivals and how God has moved in history. And it showed photos of famous Christians like missionaries of, of the past, C.T. Studd and Hudson Taylor and images flashing up there, church leaders, Spurgeon, Wesley, Jonathan Edwards. You know. And then the song gets to the bit where he says, I want to be, I'm going to be a history maker. I want to run for God and do something with my life. And the images change not to people from the past, not of people that were so well known, but lots of images of everyday people from today, all sorts of potential history makers, just everyday people. And I thought that was powerful because everyone has destiny. Everyone has the opportunity. And these people, just normal everyday people flashing up there, all with a cry to be a history maker, to do something for God, not just to live for themselves. People just like you and me, people who maybe don't have a... Uh, a famous life, don't have a political platform or a, uh, the benefits of, of fame or, uh, you know, living life on a world stage or a lot of wealth or all sorts of advantages that's, you know, help people to be well-known and maybe go down in history as, as, as famous. But each one of us and these people imaged up there with the potential to still be a world changer to make a difference, amen, to be a history maker. And this scripture talks about that because it says that Jesus has died for us and not just for our benefit, not just so that we can live for ourselves, but how? To live for him, to live for Jesus, to live for a cause beyond us, to live for other people. And when you keep reading in this passage, it goes on and talks about the kind of life we should live. It says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. And then in verse 20 it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, through you and me. Not just the famous Christians, not just the Yongi Cho's or the Brian Houston's or the well, the Joel Osteen's or the pastors of big churches or the Billy Graham's or the, every single one of us. It says we leave an old life behind when we follow Christ. We get a brand new life. And that's great. A brand new life of blessing for us. Brand new life of protection and the covenant that we heard about over communion and the offering. But a, a life that's not just for us. A life that's meant to be lived beyond ourselves and, and for Jesus and for others and And it says we're reconciled to God. We're made right with God. There's no barrier, no sin, no guilt, no dramas. There's this wonderful relationship we have with God. But again, it says it's not just for us, for ourselves. It says he's given us a ministry of reconciliation, that we can tell other people how they can get reconciled, get right with God. And not only that, it says you're an ambassador. Again, not just Paul the Apostle or a few chosen. We're all ambassadors. Ambassadors aren't just on holidays in another country. They're there for a purpose. They're there on a mission. They've got an important job. They carry themselves. We've met some. I've told you how I used to play tennis with the, the American Consulate General in St. Petersburg. And he had an ego bigger than the whole tennis stadium. We're, you know, we're in, indoors. You know, And... Uh, we had our little moments and battles on the tennis court. And it was fantastic. He used to, oh, what, he'd serve, bought, tell me if I'm boy, he'd serve flat out to serve the game, to try and serve an ace. He'd try and serve an ace and, and he'd fault twice. And I'd go to the other side and say, we're playing Californian. I'd say, what's that? He said, oh, you just serve until you get it in. I think, this is the free point, and I'm, it's boring as, and he's new, trying to get the ball in. Finally gets the ball in. And then when it was my turn to serve, I said, we're playing New South Wales. I said, what's that? I said, it's just the rules. Couldn't help myself. You know. Um, but, you know, ambassadors know that, hey, I'm on a mission. You know, that's why that is a great, spiritual, helpful film, The Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. What a... Um, and so that's you and me. And look, today, come with me to 1 Samuel uh, 13 or 14. And uh, we're going to start a series on Old Testament characters. And in weeks to come, you can learn some lessons from how different people lived for God, how they were history makers in their way, in their time. And some of the names are going to be familiar to you. But today, I want to begin with someone who made his mark in history without even having his name recorded, proving that you don't have to be well-known to make a difference. Amen? You don't have to have prominence to have significance in life. And in in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14, well, firstly, in verse 13, let me give you a bit of background. The, um, you know, the nation of Israel were, were struggling to establish themselves. They had a lot of enemies all around them. <laughs> Not much has changed in 3,000 or so years. And uh, in particular, the Philistines were, were against them and, and fighting against them. And Israel had chosen a king. They wanted a king. Everyone else had a king. God said, well, it's not really my idea. They went, oh, we want a king. So he said, oh, I'll give you a king. They gave him Saul. It looked like he'd be, that, he'd be great, tall, good-looking bloke. But he turned out to be not such a great leader. And the nation is uh, totally... In crisis, 
Uh, Saul is, is not able to lead the people into a place of security. They've got the Philistine army assembling against them. It says uh, in verse 5 of chapter 13, the soldiers were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, which would be a concerning image if you're an Israelite soldier. Wake up in the morning, you look out, hello, and there's this army waiting to attack you. And so it doesn't help them. They, so it basically says the Israelites saw that their situation was critical. They went off and hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. So all over the country, there's, there's all the Israelites hiding wherever you go. You know, you, you go to the shops, you go down to the bush, there's people hiding. The Philistines are going to attack us. They're just, and the king's army was no better. It says uh, Saul's men began to scatter. And, uh, and in fact, I think uh, it's somewhere in here, it says um, the king's uh, soldiers, yeah, verse 7, it says even the soldiers, the troops with Saul, the king, were quaking with fear. So that doesn't augur well. If you're a normal person and you think we're in dire straits, but at least the army's got it. Cont- no, the army are also quaking with fear. We're in big problem. So it was a critical time, time of crisis. Someone needed to do something to step up and... And, and he did. And it wasn't the king. It was the king's son, Jonathan. And in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. The other side of a pass. There was a ravine and a pass. He didn't tell his father. And then in verse 6, it says, Jonathan said again to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So Jonathan thinks, look, something's got to be done here. God's with us. And even if it's just me and my armor bearer, that's enough. Whether God's got a lot of men or a few men, he's going to do something here. I feel we've got to have a go. But I want you to focus this morning not on Jonathan, but on his young armor bearer. He hasn't even got a name. He's just the young armor bearer, the the valet, the butler, if you like. He's just there. He's young and and he's got his boss, his prince telling him, we're going to do this. And look what he says. In verse 7, it says, Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. That is a great thing to say to someone. Come on, he says. You just go for it. Do what you've got in your mind. I'm with you, heart and soul. And so they go up against the Philistines. There's an outpost. He's not up against the entire army, but an outpost on the edges of the army. And Jonathan sees it as a sign. He says, if they call us up, we'll go up to them. And they see them. They make themselves shown, which is kind of brave slash crazy and the Philistines see them and say well come on come up here we'll have you and they say let's go so again he says come on let's go up and he even says um, climb up after me the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel so they attack and they beat these guys they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him and so they only killed it says 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So it's not a big area, not a big battle. But the next verse says, panic then struck the whole army of the Philistines. It was a panic sent by God. So just Jonathan, just and this is how God often works. 
you know, a, a seed, a spark, a, an ember, just the beginning, someone, I'm going to do something for God. And there's a physical move, there's a natural move, but then there's a supernatural move, a spiritual move. And God moves on that. And so there's Jonathan and his army, and they, they go out and they, they have their skirmish, their battle. But then panic sets into the entire army. Maybe someone escaped and, you know, ran back to the army. The Israelites are attacking. Ah, how many? Well, only two, but they're attacking. There's got to be a lot more right behind them. You know? And so everyone, it says panic swept through the army, a panic set by God. And if you read on, it says they started, um, uh, there was a tumult in the Philistine camp. It increased more and more. Saul uh, assembled his men. He's like, oh, well, I'm up for a victory, you know. Thanks, son. You've started it off. But, but they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. You know, and so what is that? That's a panic sent by God. That's helping Israel, Israel with a supernatural confusion of the enemy. And it all started because Jonathan was willing to step out and have a go, knowing that God was with him. But not just Jonathan. It also needed his armor bearer, this nameless armor bearer playing this support role. And both men were needed, the leader and the supporter. One person might be the, the initiator, the instigator. They've got the great idea. They, they, they're willing to have a go, but they're going to need someone to support them, someone to work with them. They can't finish it on their own. They might get a a vision from God, but they're going to need someone or some people around them to see that vision fulfilled. And this is the power of partnership that you see in Scripture, you see it in life all around, where people with different gifts combine, work together for a common cause. And what I love is that the armor bearer, he didn't have a high profile like Jonathan. This is the king's son. But he didn't get hung up on that. He, he, he wasn't jealous. He wasn't resentful. He wasn't fighting for his own position or preeminence. And when Jonathan says he's going to do something, he doesn't say, oh, well, you think you know everything, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm just going to start my own kingdom. I'm going over here. I'm not going to support you. I'm, just, I'm sick of following you around. Armor bearer. What's the, I don't even have a name in here. You know, he, you know he, he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't even question Jonathan's crazy plan. And Jonathan says, we're going to go. He doesn't say, well, hold on just a minute, John. There's just you and me. I mean, with respect, your Highness, that's stupid. You know, he just says, I'm with you. I trust you. It's not my call. I don't get it. I figure you've got some understanding. You're the leader here. You know a little more about... So I'm, just, I'm just with you, heart and soul. I don't have to figure it out. I don't need to second guess and put my input in on every level. I, I'm just giving you what is right, what is appropriate. Maybe at another time when you ask my advice, I'll tell you. It's a crazy plan you know but in this case he wasn't asked he wasn't meant to be asked he did what he was meant to do and helped to change history made his mark i think that's very very cool and you know the, whenever you see someone famous or, or publicly recognized or, or doing something great achieving something there's always someone in the background or a team of people supporting them faithfully Working behind the scenes. In fact, speaking of working behind the scenes, you watch a movie and you see at the beginning of the film you've got, well, it used to just have the, um, the movie star. But I've noticed now 
it's not just the stars that get their name up in lights. It's all the production companies jostling for their position to get their name up in lights. Do you realise that? It used to be just a roaring line and then on with the show. Right? Now you've got Universal Pictures, a Joe Blow film, Castle Entertainment, in conjunction with... Have you noticed? We watched the movie the other night. I was like, seven or eight different scales. Oh, come on, will you start the film? Have you even noticed that? They've got all these different people. They've got to get their, their name there, the, the you know producers or whatever. And then you've got the movie stars and all that. But then at the end of the film... There's a whole scroll of names. And you might only remember the movie star or the name of the director, but there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of people out there scrolling along and they're all playing a part to get that movie made. Now, Cadell Evans is a classic example of a team. You probably know Cadell Evans was in the country uh, just for a couple of days because he's a professional cyclist, all the riding's up in you know the States or in Europe, and he's just made history by being the first Australian ever to win the Tour de France, the most famous bicycle race in the world. Three weeks riding flat out for three and a half thousand kilometres. But he would admit... He can't do it on his own. There's a whole team of cyclists. And you realise when they start that race, there's about 10 other guys. Maybe there's eight other guys. There's a bunch of them. And not one of them is expecting to win the tour. They don't start racing and after a few days say, oh, well, Cadell, you're doing pretty well. Why don't we just get behind you? They don't ever go there. They, don't, they start the race knowing he's the man. We are only there to help him win. And they need the help because wind resistance, you know, the whole slipstream effect, it's a big deal for cyclists. And uh, so they, you know, take it in turns to be in the front. They're looking after him and he's got to do his bit too. You, you know, you hear him talk about looking after the guy. You think, that sounds like a pretty cool job, you know. You just get sit back, stroll along. No, no, because then they get to the mountains and the time trial where you've got to do it on your own. But they set him up well. And the whole team of, and not just the riders, but the, you know, the coaches and the financial backers and the family and all the support crew, the mechanics and all. It's amazing. A big deal just to get one person to get noticed and they get the yellow jersey and all the glory and, you know, but there's a whole team. And of course, then you've got the church. And it says in the Bible that we're a family, that we're a building, building blocks working together. And um, we're an army. And, and, of course, we're a body. The Bible says that Jesus is the head and that we all have a part to play in the body. Let me remind you of a passage. You know, there's a number of different places in the New Testament that talk about the body of Christ, people playing their part and working together. Uh, let me just remind you, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says, um, just as a body has, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So we're all baptized, it says, into one spirit to form one body. Chapter 12, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
And he goes on, you know, and the I shouldn't say, well, I don't need you. I'm good enough on my own. And he uses this analogy of the physical body to say how crazy it is when people get disconnected and say, well, I don't need anyone else. I don't want to work with anyone. I want to do it on my own. And, you know, I mean, the opposable thumb is a great invention. You know, you can pick things up. Most creatures don't have that. How awesome is that? But you're not going anywhere with what you pick up unless you've got legs, you know, and take it somewhere. And so we obviously all the bits, we work together. And, he, you know, it goes, this whole passage talks about that in a, in a physical sense. Everybody is needed, everybody's different, and everybody has to work together regardless of their position. And he even talks about different parts of the body that are weaker or modest or not seen so much, still just as important as all the others. And this is where the whole uh, armour bearer thing kicks in, where this guy doesn't get hung up on not being a prominent part of the body of Christ or in the Old Testament sense, you know, the nation of Israel at that time. He doesn't say, well, I'm not the king's son and I wish I was born into privilege and how come I don't get noticed? And I, I didn't even get my name. I'm just the armor. I had a name, you know. Mum and dad named me. I'm the armor, the young armor bearer. What's with that? You know, I'm sure he's not in heaven having a go at anyone about that. It's like, well, I did my bit and I was playing, play, you know. And, and so there are times it's very easy just to follow our own ideas and our own plans and I want to do it. My way. Do you, know, you realise that is the number one song sung at funerals? I did it my way. I find that a tragic irony. I did it my way. And look where it got you. I mean, I don't know where they're heading. But I just, you know, that, that famous, you know, and I did this and I did, I did it my way. Well, Jesus tells a story of a guy who said that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. You fool. Tonight you're going to lose your soul. You're going to die. What's going to I don't want to do it my I want to do it God's way. And if I have to be an armor bearer, then so be it. I mean, you know, for years, Ruth and I were in what is now C3 Church, Oxford Falls, our mother church, if you like, and we served there in whatever capacity we were asked to. And we made a decision. We'll just say yes to everything that the pastor asked. And that meant all sorts of crazy things. You know, we were cleaning toilets at times. And we were. I was song leading. You, 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 don't, you don't want to know, you know. <laughs> I mean, they must have had a drought of musicians for a little while there. But, uh, you know, we were faithful. We were in prayer meetings. We just thought, we'll get involved. We'll say yes. We'll just go, you know, drama, skits and youth ministry and driving people around town or picking up guests or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, Ruth even, Ruth even said, I'm not, I'm not going to marry anyone unless my pastor approves. And, uh, and that's a big call. And, and a very especially big call when Pastor Phil didn't even know who I was. So she was very well known. And we're starting to get a bit keen and, you know, like at, you know, at bridal, Bible college, like Eleanor and Caleb meeting each other. And, and so she says, oh, Pastor Phil, what do you think about this guy, Chris Brown? He's like, Chris who? You know? And he, I remember she said, he went, ah. And she was like, oh. <laughs> you know, she said, oh, I can't marry him, you know. But then he went and, you know, found out some pastors who did know me and say, what's this bloke like? And then, you know, a few days later, he gave her the thumbs up and said, oh, he's yeah, cool. And a few hundred bucks slipped to Pastor Phil on the offering. Didn't hurt either. No, 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 it's not true. He just saw the diamond in the rough. Saw the, he didn't really, he delegated and just someone's case said, yeah, he's all right. And, um, <laughs> yeah, they just did a police check and thought, well, he's not a criminal. How bad can it be? 
No, no, no. They had your interests at heart. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a good call, a big call, but a good call to submit and flow and say, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to benefit from your leadership. I'm going to sow into it. I'm going to support you. I mean, like I said, we tried everything. We, we did whatever was necessary to help out. I, I, I had my ups and downs, I've got to tell you, with security. I helped out. I had my ups. I, Phil had a real edgy big guy came into his office, demanded money. Wanted money for his ministry. And Pastor Phil was very gracious and then he finally asked a couple of guys to come in and escort this man from his office. And I happened to be one of them and that was, I just, I loved it. All the testosterone came through. I thought, this is serving God. I ended up getting the guy in the full Nelson and wrestling him down the steps and sitting on him and calling the police. It was like, God, if this is ministry, I'm in, you know. But, and it was, it was truly necessary. But I was, I was gentle, you know. And, um, as well, forceful but gentle, and uh, but it wasn't always that exciting. I remember once I was helping. We, they'd had some trouble, big church, and they'd had some ruffians come in and sit up the back and cause a bit of trouble. So I, lay pastor, I think at the time, recently appointed, thinking, right, I'm going to help out here. I oversee, tell the deacons what to do, and I saw these really rough guys coming into the back of the church. They had, uh, they were Maori guys. Uh, you know, islanders, bearded, long, greasy black hair, leather jackets, dirty jeans, big tattoos. They walked in like this, and they all sat up the back of the church. I thought, well, here's trouble. Look at them. You know, they might as well have a sign. We're going to terrorise the place. So I told some deacons, I said, just watch these guys. You know, be concerned about that. Halfway through the service, Pastor Phil gets up and says, well, we're so blessed tonight. We've got this amazing godly singer all the way from New Zealand, Steve Aparana. Come up here. Steve Aparana was, had been a very tough guy who got miraculously saved, had the sweetest spirit you could imagine. And if you've ever heard his music, you'd know. And he's a big, gentle giant. And sure enough, he had greasy, long black hair. And, and he'd get up there and all his band, they're all, they just looked like the front row of some local regional, you know, rugby team or something. And, and here am I thinking, this is not my job. This, you know, um, trying to choose, trying to, trying to pick them. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. I mean, that we, I carried Phil's bags and did what we could, literally, you know, at, at times traveling. And in fact, when I was, uh, with him overseas, he'd be up there preaching and blessing, you know, thousands of people at big meetings. But I'm sharing in that success by doing my bit, you know, and, um, and then when we were in Russia, there's this wonderful partnership because we, uh, were sending back reports of revival from the other side of the world and it was only because we were sent and we were supported by them. In fact, Ruth and I never had a vision or a plan or an idea or a heart to go to Russia. It was more uh, Phil and Christine. Christine had a heart for the Russian people. Phil, when the communist government collapsed, said, let's get someone over there and you don't really think, let's have a holiday or let's go. We didn't ever think of going there ourselves. But there's a partnership and... Um, and, uh, you know, it's just part of, you know, being in the team. And it was hardly the, you know, the height of my gift usage it was not to be a, a deacon or iron shirts, but there are seasons when you're serving in the kingdom as a servant to the king of kings. And you can have seasons of serving and sowing uh, without maybe using all your gifts to their full, but it's good character building, building the kingdom, just getting the job done. And, of course, these days... I have more of a leadership role, but 
from what I've sown, I reap with supportive people who get around and say, yeah, this is a vision of God. Let's, let's do what we can do. Let's be part of the team. And, uh, you know, let's reach people for Jesus. Let's care for people. Let's get 101 developed. Let's reach people overseas where God calls us. Uh, I'll be in Thailand for the next couple of weeks, but Daniel and Genevieve are going to live there. And we have missionaries in Africa, and we've sent them, uh, you know, to the uh, Middle East. And um, we've, you know, got the opportunity to get behind these people. We need, you know, it's a team effort in prayer, in finances, maybe even a short-term trip for some, depending on what gets established in Bangkok where these guys are going. The fact is, every one of us has a part to play. Amen? And, you know, even though we've, we've all got our own lives, we've all got our own leadership of our own lives and we've got things that we'll initiate and we've got things that we might lead others in but each of us will also have that armor bearer role opportunity and the question is to whom do you say do what you have in mind i'm with you heart and soul where it's not just you wanting others to say that to you or you saying, well, I don't want to do anything with anyone. I'm doing it all on my own. But where you can commit and trust and say, no, I'm with you. I'm supportive. I, you've got, I don't have to think it all through. I'm just, I'm just with you. Now, we should be able to say that to our spouse and trust them. We should be able to say it in our family, to our close friends. But I believe God calls us to say it in the body of Christ, in a bigger picture than sometimes we would feel comfortable, living not just for ourselves, as that scripture in Corinthians says, living for him who died for us. Amen? And, uh, and, the, and the fact is, if you sacrifice your time and your energy to serve a bigger vision, to serve someone else, it's a great investment. God never rips you off. God is the safest bank. You know, the investors all this week, people all eyes on the NASDAQ and Wall Street and the ASX and all the, you know, up and down and roller coaster ride and stop the short-term trading and the short selling in Europe. And, you know, there's all sorts of controls and concerns. And it's an amazing billions, billions and billions of dollars up and down, all on human sentiment, fear, you know, bear or bull market, all, you know, and people are investing their money all the time into this market, which is, you know, fraught with vagaries of, of, you know, human feeling, the safest investment with your, your whole life, not just your money, is in God. And so when he calls you to sow into his church, into whether it's your, your finances or your, your gifts in serving, it's a great investment. It's a secure investment. God is loving and faithful and awesome and powerful and, and you know, bigger than the share market and every other human, uh, you know, deal going on where people are wanting to find some blessing and some security. And so well, that's why Jesus said, if you lose your life, that's when you're going to really find it. So it's a good investment, even though we have our own... Uh, leadership of our own details of our life uh, we're not you know meant to just be mindless servants uh, but there is that spirit of being a servant I read the other day just how Jesus said how we need to, be, to have a childlike faith we need to become like little children and that's very humbling because we all know little children don't know it all and adults think well I know it all and Jesus said actually you've got something to learn from the little kids is, a, is an innocence and a followship and a need to follow 
that he says you adults lose and need to recapture. Where That's why we're calling God Father, not just mate or colleague. You know, okay, I accept Jesus as my co-worker in life. No, Lord, Saviour, King, <laughs> you know. So there's a, there's a deal there for us. And once again, the armour bearer, he remains unknown, unnamed on earth, but you can be sure that he was known by God and he's got a name in heaven. He faithfully supported Jonathan. He followed the call to the fight. And of course, in the Old Testament, that's a physical fight. In the New Testament, we got a physical fight. They were fighting to establish Israel as a nation against the oppression of the Philistines. And we're called to establish God's kingdom and fight against the devil's oppression on people's lives. And just like the armor bearer, we've got to be people who are willing to go to the battlefield, to fight and to flow and follow someone's lead. And then we pray with the word, with the blood of Jesus, with our faith. We witness with our lives, with our willingness to walk across the room and tell someone about Christ. And with a heart to serve, to serve God, to serve his church and to serve those that he puts in our path to lead and follow with. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message and feel challenged and encouraged. Please let others know about this free podcast so they too can grow and learn to live their best life. You can find out more about our church and ministries at www.c3cc.org.au. God bless you.